Morning, Calvary. It's great to see you this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Thomas, and it's my joy to be able to open up the scriptures on the weekends with us and continue our series that we're in through the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is writing to a community of believers that are going through trying times, that are struggling, that perhaps are exhausted, maybe they're afraid, perhaps they're angry. And what he's writing to them is a kind of like a sermon for their perseverance of faith, that they would be reminded of the greatness of Christ that's greater than all of their sufferings, greater than all of their sorrows, greater than all of their challenges, greater than all of the circumstances, so that they would continue to put faith in the great, exalted Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know where you find yourself today, but perhaps you find yourself in a season where you are exhausted. You are angry. You're afraid. There are challenges. There are circumstances in your life where it feels like my faith is falling apart. Hebrews chapter 3 specifically is written for our perseverance of faith. And so if that's where you find yourself today, I'm so thankful that you're here because God has a word for you. The passage we're going to look at is what the Tinsley's just read. Hebrews chapter 3. Jesus greater than Moses. And then there's a quote from Psalm 95, a warning to listen and not fall away, to listen and not have your hearts become hard and shipwreck your faith. And that's from Psalm 95 speaking of an episode that happened in Exodus. Now, when I think of principles that need to be learned or characters that need to be developed, characteristics that need to be developed in our life, I think the pattern is pretty much the same universally. If there's something that you want to instill in your children, if you're a coach and you're trying to develop something in your athletes, if you're a, a teacher and you're trying to instill something in your students, oftentimes the same formula is implemented, which is you look to the past for an example. It could be in their near, you know, near past or it could be way back in the past, a historical reference point in which you point to and say, see how this happened. And maybe some positives came out of it or some negatives, some positive things we want to emulate, some negative things we want to avoid. And then you bring that principle to the present life lived. If we would do this, so we would not be like them or that we would be like them today, then you paint this future hope that perhaps circumstances could be different, circumstances could be better, desired outcomes could be realized if we would practice that today. So imagine you're a coach. This is what we would call game film. You get your whole team together and you look at last week's game and say, man, don't do that again. Or that was such a good play. You were right in the spot. Why don't we, if we did that every single week, we would win way more games. Or you might be a parent. You look at your kids and say, okay, when I was your age, you're coming out of high school, you're going into college. I didn't understand the importance of compound interest. And it's really important to understand this principle early on, because now that I'm like in my 70s, I really, I've been trying to catch up for years, but it's all about beginning early. So don't do what I did. You take them to a historical moment. Practice this now, presently, and your future changes. Well, the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing. 
He pulls up the highlight reel of perseverance of faith, the importance of holding on to our convictions in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of challenges, in the midst of fear and exhaustion. And he pulls up the highlight reel through Psalm 95 to this wilderness exodus that maybe we're less familiar with. And so I want you to have it in the forefront of your mind so you'd understand the principles he's trying to teach the congregation today. So if you've got your Bible, first open to Hebrews 3 and get your finger there. And then track with me to your Old Testament and you can go to Numbers chapter 13. I'm assuming you probably had a devotional reading this week from the book of Numbers so you know exactly where it is. But it's right there in the beginning of your Bible. Go to Numbers 13. While you're going to Numbers 13, I'm going to kick us off a little bit earlier in Exodus chapter 3. Here in Exodus chapter 3 is kind of where this Moses story that we're familiar with begins. This is the burning bush episode. And the writer of Hebrews is pointing out to these people that Jesus is greater than Moses. And Moses is probably the greatest prophet they could think of. Because Moses is the one that brought them out of Egypt. Passover was established through Moses. The ordinances, the law came through Moses. I mean, Moses is the historical hero of the story. So Jesus being greater than Moses is an amazing statement. But here in Exodus 3, God has drawn Moses' attention through the bush and he speaks to him. Verse, chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land or up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Berezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So there God calls Moses and says, okay, Moses, I see their sufferings and I'm going to bring them out of it and I'm going to bring them into a place of rest and promise that is fertile that is beautiful, that will nourish them, that will be safe. It's going to give respite. And I'm going to do it through you, Moses. And so you kind of know the story. Moses begins to display God's power through these plagues. And the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is harder and harder and harder until finally it's broken with the last plague. They celebrate Passover and they head out. Now, what we get wrong in this story is this oftentimes. Now, you might have this right because you're a super Christian. That's good. But maybe you don't, which is, it took them 40 years to leave Egypt to get to the promised land. Like, find a better map or get a GPS unit or what was God doing? Why did it take 40 years to get in the promised land? Well, it didn't actually take them 40 years to get the promised land. It took them 40 years to get into the promised land, but not to the promised land. When Numbers 13 is written, we're going to look at this, they're on the precipice of the promised land about 18 months after leaving Egypt. So they celebrate Passover, which happens in April, and they leave, they leave Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, so it's probably April, May, and then they go, to, they go through the Valley of Sin, and then they have the quail come down, the man, and they get to Sinai a few months later. And then probably in the summertime of that same year, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, so over a month, comes back down, and you build a golden calf without me. And then he has to smash the tablets and in anger. We've we got to consecrate the people. I mean, it's a bad scenario. Then Moses has got to go back up for another 40 days, over a month. 
That brings them into the fall, probably. And then maybe, let's say, September of that same year. Then they receive the law. They begin to make arrangements to build the tabernacle, the portable worship center. They're ordaining priests. They're receiving the law and the covenant, about seven months there, which takes them back to the following April, 12 months later, where they celebrate Passover again. And then from there, with ordained ministers, with the erection of the temple, they begin to move to the promised land, and they're there probably early fall, maybe September, maybe this time of the year. They're on the precipice of going into the promised land, having received the law, the covenant, they've erected the tabernacle, they have priests, they're ready to go. And God calls them to go send out spies. And this is what was read in our text this morning. Do not harden your heart as they did at the rebellion. This is that highlight reel of the rebellion. So Numbers 13, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send the men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people Israel. From each tribe of the fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So there's 12 spies that are going to go in because there's 12 tribes. And they send them in, they give them this task of spy out the land. Is it good land? Is it bad land? What's the fruit like? What are the people like? Are they big, small? Are they fortified? Bring back a report. And so they head in. So Moses sends them in, check out verse 25, or sorry, verse 17 of 13. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. And whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, or whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, whether the trees, whether there are trees or not, I mean, it just gives them all these things. And so he sends them in. And he sends them in for 40 days. They spy out the land for 40 days, so a little over a month. So now we're like late fall, maybe. We're in October, November. Verse 25, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to the, all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, like massive fruits. I mean, clusters of grapes that they're carrying on poles between two people. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Just like God said all the way back in Exodus. He's faithful. He's brought us here and the land looks just like he said it would. Let's go in there. No, that's not what they say. There's a word here. This is where the rebellion begins. Verse 28. However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Achan there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell in the sea and along the Jordan. Yeah, God said they would. They're all there just like God said they would be. But Caleb, there's Caleb and Joshua, two of the spies. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out 
saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would what we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So the majority voice comes back to the congregation 18 months after traveling with everything ready in hand to enter the promised land. And they say, can't do it. They're too big. We're too small. They're too strong. We're too weak. We cannot inherit this land. They will devour our children. And they spin up this whole congregation of people to where they go back to their homes. Deuteronomy 1 records the same event. Goes back to their homes and it says, they murmured with each other. It means they got back in their little cohorts, maybe in their little life groups, in their families, and they started talking to each other and it just became an echo chamber. It became an echo chamber. We can't do this. They're too big. We're too small. They're too strong. We're too weak. We can't get in there. We shouldn't follow Moses and Aaron. You know what we should do? We should find new leaders that will do what we want them to do and take us back to Egypt. Isn't it amazing that group think amongst people are so quick to get rid of leadership, to acquire new leadership that will do exactly what they want them to do. Well, God's not happy because these people should know the faithfulness of God. These are the people, as we'll see in Hebrews, that were in Egypt, that saw the plagues, that walked through the Red Sea, that followed the cloud by day and the pillar by night, that found quail out of nowhere and manna out of heaven water in the desert. They were there at Sinai. They saw what God did in the rebellion with the golden calf. And here they will not trust God. They just won't do it. They turn away from God and try to find new leadership. So Numbers, I lost my place, Numbers 14. Look down at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you, speaking to Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses, there's this dialogue that I don't even quite understand, honestly, where God says, I'm going to disinherit them. I'm going to start with you, Moses, a new family. The family of Moses. And Moses turns and says, no, don't do that, Lord. Because the other nations who have heard of you have seen us, be, have seen us journeying. Even the Egyptians are going to think that you weren't strong enough. 
to fulfill the mission and bring us into the land. And so for your namesake, remember what your name means, that you are steadfast in love, abounding in mercy, by no means clearing the guilty, but that you are faithful and committed. And so there's this interesting dialogue with God and Moses where it's almost like two parents, where God's like, I'm going to kill him. And Moses is like, don't kill him yet, honey. And then it's like, Moses is like, I'm going to kill him. And God's like, be patient with him, Moses. Like you see this dialogue of bringing these people through the wilderness. And God says to Moses, okay, I'm not going to do that. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have, pard- I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of these who despised me shall see it. That's the judgment that comes on these people. That the author of Hebrews is picking up to say, remember the great rebellion, those who fell away in faith, and none of them entered the promised land of God. Verse 34, 14. This is where the number of 40 years comes in. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day you shall bear your iniquity, 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. That's a significant judgment on God's people who had seen the work of God and have chosen to move their eyes off of God onto new leadership, to take them back to the place in which God delivered them from. God said, for 40 years now, you'll go back into the wilderness. And this whole generation, which is 20 years and older, has to die off and I will bring in your children. Isn't that amazing? They're they're afraid to go in because their children are going to get devoured. And God says, no, they weren't going to get devoured. They're the ones that are going to inherit the land. There's this generational consequence, decisions that mothers and fathers made that had significant impacts on their kids' lives. Just imagine this. The kids at this point could be 10 years old and they don't get to enter the land of promise until they're 50. There are kids that will be born in the wilderness that were not at this moment that are going to inherit the promised land. This is the serious story that the Hebrews writer is drawing from to teach his congregation, the community of believers, in the midst of their hardships and sufferings, to not lose faith with God. So let's go back to Hebrews with that in our mind, to Hebrews chapter 3. Now, when you're a, a group of people and you've gone through the wilderness for 18 months, I'm sure you're exhausted. I'm sure there are sorrows that you have. I'm sure you're angry about the pace of things. I'm sure you're afraid when you hear this report of what God has called you to go occupy. And when all of those things are in our life, they compound one on another. It's easy to diminish our faith and get our eyes and our attention off of God's faithfulness and onto something else. And so the writer of Hebrews now wants to build perseverance in their congregation, in their community, so that they won't be like that generation. They'll be able to go and enter into God's promised rest. 
Now, if you have a question about what is God's promised rest and can I lose my place in God's promised rest, that's a great question in which chapter four next week we'll pick up. But for today, let's finish up here in verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So he quotes Psalm 95 here of today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. He pulls up this highlight reel and says, okay, now, brothers and sisters, in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your challenges and your exhaustion, take care of your faith so that there won't be evil, unbelieving heart like they had leading you to fall away and not inherit God's promised rest. That's a serious thing, isn't it? So what does the writer of Hebrews put here that we can adopt or add or make sure that we're doing in our own spiritual lives as not to become these unbelievers and walk away from God? Now, I didn't say this in first service, and I'll say it here in second service. It's kind of like early bird gets the worm, but second mouse gets the cheese kind of thing. Here's some cheese for you, some cheddar. They, their early beginnings, when they all left Egypt together, right down here in verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not all those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What he's pointing out, it's not like they picked up a whole bunch of people along the way that had never seen God's work. And they had a really strong beginning, but strong beginnings don't determine strong endings or guarantee strong endings. And this wilderness episode of the Israelites parallels, I think, a spiritual wilderness episode that you and I have as followers of Jesus. That someone has told you at some point in your life, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He's going to forgive you of all your sins. He will bring you into an inheritance. He will deliver you from shame and guilt. And you said, yeah! And then it started living it out. And then it became hard. Even harder than it was before being a Christian. And you got to places that felt like a wilderness. And now you had other people in the world that were provoking you, that weren't provoking you before because you weren't even a Christian. And there's a spiritual wilderness, maybe it's called sanctification, in which we begin, we leave Exodus, we leave Egypt, we leave slavery, but yet we're not fully in heaven, in the renewed earth, in the presence of God. And we have to journey through the spiritual wilderness in which feels like our faith can erode at times. When we feel like God is not providing for all my needs in, in all the ways and all the times that I want him to. That God seems mysterious at times. Like, where'd you go? We, we were speaking with you and now we don't see you. And then there are threats that challenge the promises of God in our life. And so Hebrews is saying, okay, you, you have a spiritual wilderness between beginning with Jesus and coming to this ultimate place of rest and Sabbath, we'll talk about next week, that parallels this. And so we want perseverance and endurance. So how do we do that? Lest we fall away. I think there's three things. If you're a note taker, you can take these down. If you're just really good at remembering them, you can just remember them. Three things from this immediate chapter 
that this author is giving his community, three of them, that we would look at, that we would listen up, and that we would lean in. Say those again. That we would look at, that we would listen up, and we would lean in. The first thing is where we fix our eyes. The Israelites got their eyes off of God, and they got them on new leadership. But we want to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, as it was read this morning, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. It means think about Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Give your attention to Jesus. Now, why would we want to look at Jesus? It's because Jesus is our advocate, our help, our strength in time of need. Remember how we ended last week in chapter two, looking at the great salvation that he has provided? It was for us, human beings, those who have to walk through the hardships of the world. Look back at chapter two, verse 16, just as a reference point. For surely it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us, children. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people, to forgive our sins. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has suffered all our sufferings. He has felt all of our sorrows. He has been tempted in all the ways that you and I are tempted and yet was without sin. He was tempted unto death, so far he resisted. Surely he can help those who are in the middle of sufferings and temptations, perhaps their own death. Put your eyes, look at Jesus. He's here to help you. We'll see this picked up in chapter four. Check out chapter, end of chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you feel like my faith is falling apart here, I feel my heart is getting hard. The first thing we do is we look at Jesus. Let me ask you this. How much time this last week have you spent looking at Jesus? How much time in the morning, afternoon, or evening have you spent looking intentionally at the life, the ministry, the works of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels? How did he do it? How can I do it? How much time have you looked at other places that aren't Jesus looking for help? looking for other leaders to give you just what you want. First thing is look at Jesus. He's there to help you. Second is that we listen up. Here's that quote from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, that we want to listen to the voice of God. What did God tell Moses? I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you into the land of promise. That land of promise will have milk and honey, and it's going to have these Canaanites, Hittites, etc. They're going to be there. And they got to the land, and what did the land look like? Exactly what God said it would. He's faithful. But whose voice did Israel listen to? The voice of God? No, they listened to the voice of majority. The majority spies came back, 10 of them, and said, we can't do it. Nope, 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 can't do it. And they listened to majority voice 
instead of God's voice. Once again, let me ask, how much time this week have you put yourself before the voice of God, the word of God, to say, God, this is trustworthy and true. It speaks about the reality, the hardships, the promises you have for my life. And I want to tune my ear to listen to your voice because there's a lot of voices out there right now. But I want to listen to you and your promises and what you have called me to do, even if it feels like that's the hard, impossible thing. So we look at Jesus, we listen up to God's word. And the last thing here, this is just amazing. This just blows my mind. That we lean in to one another. That the one another is part of our faith of perseverance. You don't do Christianity by yourself. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day. Exhort means encourage. But encourage every encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That when we isolate ourselves from one another, there's a sense in which sin can come in, deceive us, and then harden our heart to where it becomes calloused, like calluses on your hand. You lose sensitivity to these things. You lose feeling of these things. And the deceitfulness of sin always seems to show up when we are vulnerable, worn down, and weary. We're susceptible to it. Sin is deceptive in two ways. It's appearance and it's promises. It always looks really good, tastes really good, and then it promises, it always over-promises, and then somehow ensnares me to get me to a place I don't really want to be. And it robs from me the life that it promised that it was going to give me. That's what sin does. It deceives me. And when I'm worn down, I'm vulnerable to these things. When I start talking to my head and listening to my voice in my own head, it says, no one understands what you're going through. Nobody works as hard as you work. No one appreciates you for the way that you should be appreciated. No one thanks you for what you should be thanked for. You deserve this. Yeah, your husband doesn't treat you like he does. She's way more fun than your wife is. I mean, you pick your poison. But there's something about when we are worn down, having a hard time, that the deceitfulness of sin comes in and says, look how this appears. Doesn't this look good? That looks great. That'll get me out of this train wreck. Doesn't this, doesn't this promise me respite? It promises me respite. Okay, I give myself to it. And then it ensnares us and gives us a hardness of heart and leads us away then from our faith. I jokingly said this in the beginning of quarantine last year with a few people. As I watched the uptick of alcohol consumption amongst friends and community and whatnot, and I jokingly said, hey, you don't want to get out of quarantine just to jump into AA. So pay attention to what's going on right now. And I just use that as a simple example. And now as we see the statistical evidence of where people are at in alcohol consumption, and now they can't even break free from it as they return to the office, it's just true of us. What happens when we are experiencing these wilderness seasons is we're vulnerable to the deception of sin to come in and then rob me of my looking at Jesus, my listening to God, 
and encouraging one another. And so the remedy of it, the remedy of the deceitfulness of sin is that we lean in, is that we encourage each other, that when I'm struggling up here, I hold on to your faith. And when you're struggling, you hold on to my faith. And we encourage one another to look at Jesus, to listen to God. And then we encourage where we see victories being found. We share our own stories of, hey, this is when I experienced a season of unemployment and how God provided for all of my needs in ways I couldn't even imagine. Here was a season of grief and sorrows that the Lord drew so near to me and comforted me. I know he'll comfort you too. And just sharing those encouragements with one another gives perseverance to each other's faith that we will follow Christ together. Christianity is not an individual activity. We don't strive after Jesus alone. And this is so important for us as the church today because we live in a time, we live in a time where most people are trying to lean away and trying to isolate themselves away. And we are called for the perseverance of our faith to lean in, to connect with one another, encourage them. I see you. I saw you forgive that person. That must have been so hard. God is so pleased with you. And that encourages my faith. I'm going to go forgive some people. I saw you being generous. That was so wonderful. God is so proud of you and the generosity that you gave. I saw you take time and listen to her. That was so sweet. You're, you are such a great friend and encourages me to be a great friend. I saw the way that you, you fill in the blank. You're doing a great job as a mom. I know it's hard being a dad. You are faithful. Good job. I saw the way that you took grandkids this week. You're a great grandfather, instilling things, Grand, grandmother, caring for your children's children. I'm proud of you. This is the way we encourage each other. Let me just ask you this. Are you a good encourager? Think about your closest unit. Maybe it's your friends you live with. Maybe it's your family. Um, the people that are closest in your life. Would they look at you and say, and they're just a great encourager. She is such a good encourager. He's such a good encourager. I want to be around them because they encourage me. If the answer is no, we got to grow in that. We got to grow in that. I, I want to unleash a thousand encouragers this weekend back into their communities to say, okay, I'm intentionally going to encourage brothers and sisters in faith who I know that their faith is failing right now. So for per perseverance of their faith, and not to be fallen to the deception of sin, I'm going to go intentionally encourage them. I'm going to send them a text today. I'm going to send them an email today. I'm going, to, I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to write a physical letter and mail it. And I'm going to encourage them in faith. So here's the last, the last thing we'll land on. When do we do these things? When do we look at Jesus? When do we listen up to God's voice? And when do we encourage one another? You see it in the text? Today. Today's not tomorrow. Today's today. We have no promise of tomorrow. All that we have is today, this moment. Today is today. We do this today. And then when tomorrow is here, we do it then because that's today. We do this every single day until the Lord returns. And that's how we build a perseverance of faith. Look at Jesus, listen to his voice, 
his word. And we encourage one another. It's so great to be in this large group setting, but this does not substitute to gather in small groups. And so men, be in small groups. Women, be in small groups. Families, be in small groups in which we huddle up so that we can listen, look, and lean together. Sound good? We want to be a church that has great faith, that perseveres through trying days like today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the grace that you have given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I need my brothers and sisters in this room for the sake of my faith. And so, Lord, would you teach us how it is that we encourage one another? Would you open our ears to hear you and give us sight to see you in your activities with us? And Father, may we do it today, not wait another day. We do it today. I pray for those that don't know you in this room. Today's the day for them to surrender their life. I pray that they would hear and sense you calling them that today is it to surrender their life to Jesus. I pray for my friends in this room that have listened and looked at so many other things. Would you call them back to you and your promises and what is true? I pray that we would all be encouraged today to know the grace of Jesus Christ that's with us. Lord, I, I confess that my faith goes up and down like a roller coaster at times. There are days when it feels like little faith. There's days of great faith. But I thank you that my salvation is established in the faithfulness of Jesus and not my own. And so, Lord, would you now just pour out your grace on us that we would worship you and that we would give you ourselves. Lord, we're so prone to drift away and wander away. I pray that you would take our hearts now and bind them to yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen.